This is a podcast from National Music Camp 2019. What advice would you give somebody who's already established in a career that's not a musical career? Oh, that wanted to do both? Well, do both. <laughs> I'm Maddie Twoster. And I'm Stella Joseph Jarecki. And that was a little of Anna Goldsworthy's presentation here at National Music Camp, where she spoke to us about her music, her writing, and her incredibly busy life. She's had a pretty amazing career. She's performed nationally and internationally as a solo pianist and as a core member of the Seraphim Trio. She's also published many essays on music and cultural issues and has written two books, Piano Lessons and Welcome to Your New Life, with a third book due to be released this year. In addition to all of that, she teaches and lectures here at the University of Adelaide, was the artistic director of the Port Ferry Spring Music Festival for many years and even had a brief foray into the world of acting. Stella and I had the chance to catch up with her and chat to her about how she made all these things possible. I didn't really have a clear idea of what my career would look like. It was more a question of just walking towards the things I like, I guess, that got me to where I am now. But there's never really been anything particularly strategic about it beyond the obvious of practising hard and trying to learn the repertoire and... Uh, the rest of it has had something of a haphazard quality to it. The jump from your study life to mm. real life, mm. especially as a music graduate, how did you find that? That's a very good question because I think it's always intensely problematic in our art form particularly. Well, and probably in most art forms is there's not that clear transition. There's not always that clear pathway or trajectory. But in my case, the line between study and professional life has always been a bit blurry and hazy, partly because I continued studying for a very, very long time and finished my doctorate. can't quite remember when, but, you know, there was maybe 12 years of tertiary study after all of those years of, of early study. And also because along the way, when I was doing that tertiary study, I was already performing quite a lot in semi-professional or sometimes, you know, professional capacities. So in a way, it all felt blurred into one. There was never a moment when the study was finished and I sort of sat up feeling alarmed that I now had to make my way in the real world because I'd already had a foot in the real world for many years previously. And I know there's an argument for remaining intensely focused on your study and not pursuing any opportunities beyond that. But my approach was always the opposite. I was keen to be out there and, and getting a sense of what life was going to be like as a musician. Was that a conscious choice of yours or um, were you feeling a little bit restless under the institution? I think it was a conscious choice. Certainly a formative part of that was setting up my trio when we were still undergraduates. And I learned so much from that process, not only from the process of making chamber music, that's been huge, but also from everything that goes around that in terms of concert organisation, seeking opportunities, the necessity to learn some basic tools of self-promotion, which, you know, we're speaking a generation ago, essentially, so pre-social media, which meant it looked a bit different, and, and also the ability to put yourself forward and approach presenters and approach organisers and, and get the gigs and then get re-engaged, not just turn up and, and do the gig and, and then be forgotten. And that's essentially how the trio has been able to build a circuit around this country. That certainly began when I was still a student.
So could you tell us a bit about your approach in juggling so many different disciplines in your career? These days, there's a couple of extra complications. One is that I have an academic appointment here at the University of Adelaide, and the other is that I'm a mother to two lovely, demanding boys. And so trying to preserve space for these creative pursuits, which are really critical to my sense of, I guess, who I am and and what I want to be doing, can be challenging. And I think, you know, first of all, you have to make it a priority. You have to make your practice a priority. Otherwise, it's very easy for it to be set aside in favour of the immediate gratification, if one can use that word in this context of, you know, dealing with an email and feeling like you've crossed something off or ticked off a task. Practice doesn't always yield those immediate results and yet it's important to maintain that discipline. Likewise, writing, I think. It's hard to get your head around particularly a large work in tiny little increments. And my publisher is forever on my case saying, you just need to set aside a day a week to focus on writing. And then once you've got that momentum, then you can kind of deal with it in a more sporadic way. But I can't pretend that I have any particularly sane weekly schedule mapped out. It's more a question of dealing with whatever is most pressing at the moment. I do often find it stimulating going from one type of project to another. And I also love the idea of not repeating myself or not getting too comfortable. For instance, when I was directing the Port Ferry Spring Music Festival, which I adored, I felt after about five or six years, it was getting a little bit too easy. And you don't want things to become formulaic. And, and for me, that was uh, an indication that perhaps it was time to move on and, and find a, a new challenge. Is moving around a kind of remedy for self-doubt in a way? That's a really, really good question and, um, <laughs> and an insightful probably psychoanalysis. I have wondered occasionally whether it's me giving myself a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like if things don't go particularly well on the stage, I think, well, I'm really a writer, so... <laughs> That doesn't matter. And likewise, you know, if something doesn't quite come off on the page, I think, well, you know, I'm a pianist. So I don't think consciously my desire to do more than one thing is motivated by insecurity. I I just feel a pressing need to express myself in in those two disciplines in particular. And on on my best days, I feel that they actually feed each other and, and enhance each other. find yourself experiencing self-doubt and what are some of your strategies if you do about overcoming it and and embracing the exciting parts of the opportunities and perhaps not the voice that says am I ready for this particular task? Yeah that's another very very good question. I think self-doubt is a necessary ingredient in anybody's psychological makeup in that you can't do very much without a modicum of humility but on the other hand I think I'm less paralyzed by it these days than perhaps I had been in the past. And I think part of that is experience. The more you get out there and do things, the more things go well and, you know, land as you might want them to. Having said that, there's always failures along the way. And how does one recover from a failure? 
a useful mentality is always the next one is going to be better. Whatever it is, the next book is going to be better. The next concert's going to be better. Because there's, you know, there's this lovely thing that musicians always say, which is that you're only as good as your last concert. And I, th I think there's a great truth in that. I think you can't actually dine out on your past successes as a musician and you actually have to prove that you still have it every single time you're on stage. And stage is a very unforgiving place and a very honest place. You can't hide out there. You can't be pretentious or claim that you're anything that you're not because the evidence is, is before you. Being a good Boy Scout and being prepared as much as you can. Sometimes you're not. On those occasions, you kind of hope and trust that the sort of rich body of experience that lies behind you will maybe carry you through. What are some of the occupational hazards of having a freelance career such as yours? Well, there's a number. One is a lack of financial security. And, but having said that, over the past few years, I've had this academic position, which has allowed me, for instance, to finally buy a house. Because when you're 18, you make all these decisions. I don't care about money. I'm going to be an artist. And then all your friends end up being, I don't know, hedge fund managers. And you're still there sitting in your studio thinking, yeah, I love my art, but would be nice to have a bit of financial stability. So having a job has taken that particular pressure off and particularly with being a parent, that's been a good source of stability for me. So beyond that, for me, one of the difficulties in negotiating my freelance career has been when you're building it, the best way to build it is to seek opportunities, which I always did. And you say yes a lot and then you get to the point where you're getting actually more opportunities than you can successfully field. And it's very easy to just maintain that kind of grasping freelance mentality and continue to say yes. So one thing I've been trying to school myself in in recent years is that occasionally deploying the word no is very useful. And if anything, it actually increases the value of your yes. So just being a little bit more discerning about what I choose to spend my time on. Because too often I find myself in these sort of panicky situations in which I'm paying for the enthusiasm of a previous version of myself that existed 18 months ago. You know, someone says, yeah, why don't you play this concerto and write this novel and go on this concert tour and, you know, September next year, yeah, I'll be able to do that. That sounds great. And then suddenly it's September next year and you think, oh, God, I just have to put my head down and work like a Trojan and never going to do this again. career, how much of it was a mix of tirelessly chipping away and, and working hard and being present and also happy, random happenings mm. and opportunities and, and how did those two things interact? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a great question about life generally, isn't it? How much is, is destiny and how much is created by self? There's one thing that my teacher always said to me, which is that people talk about luck, but a lot of the time you choose your luck or you recognise your luck when you see it. And I've, I've certainly been very, very lucky and I've had some great opportunities come my way. But I've also always been a workaholic and I've been ready to meet those opportunities and maybe ready to recognise those opportunities too, I think, when they come. Becoming a presenter of music, it was Philip Samets, who's here coordinating the Words About Music course, who suggested that perhaps I might 
be a good person to do that for Music Aviva. And at the time, I wasn't sure whether I should or not, but it, I'm, I'm really pleased that I did because it's made me much more comfortable doing that. Likewise, I was really fortunate to be approached by my publisher, Chris Fike, who asked me to write my book. You know, that's a huge act of luck that rarely happens. But on the other hand, I think I'd prepared the necessary preconditions. I'd been writing for years, been publishing a lot. I'd got to a point where I felt I'd developed and refined a certain level of literary craft. And so I was in a position to take that opportunity on board. But writing that book and publishing that book, I think that was really a real milestone for me in terms of my career, in terms of my musical career and in terms of my literary career. My work with the trios, on the other hand, has been a whole lot of really um, just rolling our sleeves up and building our audiences person by person, building our repertoire note by note. We've had some great luck too in that we have a wonderful mentor in Hanover, Hato Bayala, who took us under his wing nearly two decades ago and who we continue to see whenever we can. And a number of beautiful, benevolent people who have essentially adopted us around this country. That's one of the things I love about touring with a trio now is just these relationships we have with people. So there's an enormous amount of luck in that, but there's a huge amount of labour that went behind it. And often the members of my trio say to me, you know, actually they blame me. If it wasn't for my kind of head in the sand, mad persistence, they, Helena said she doesn't know if we'd still be going. So obviously... Under time constraints, it can be hard to stay creatively engaged and we were just wondering how during times when you have a lot of time or when you're really pressed for time, how you stay creatively inspired. I think a lot of my inspiration comes from other people and I love collaborations. I love chamber music for that reason. I love various writing projects that I've done for the stage particularly that have been collaborative but even when I'm writing books myself sitting in a room I sort of try to draw my editor in to make it a kind of collaborative relationship because I do feed off other people's energy and ideas so I, I find that is a constant source of inspiration. I think when things are not so busy it can be great to really fully partake of idleness quiet time. I was on a writer's retreat up at the beautiful Eucaria in Mount Barker, that wonderful concert hall at the end of last year. And I've done that a few times now and I always find it very, very fruitful for my writing. Just space, boredom, in fact, being able to go for long walks. It's quite remarkable to me how that's when the ideas really start generating. I, I just actually sent a draft of my latest novel to my publisher on Sunday night. And the only way I was able to do that was I went up to an artist's retreat. I just went and sat there in solitary confinement for a week in December. And pretty much the, the central reason I had to do that in order to write my book was I had to get away from my six-year-old because he never stops talking. Like the monologue starts five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. I try to enforce the rule of no monologue before 7 a.m. But from that moment on, my mental space is just commandeered by, you know, questions like, hey, mummy, guess the number between one and a thousand. You've got a hundred choices. So, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're thinking these sorts of thoughts all day, it's very hard to ascend the lofty heights of a artistic output. You touched on this earlier. How has motherhood informed your work and vice versa? Motherhood for me 
has just been on balance. I mean, it's been hugely stressful, but it's such a joyful thing. And the boys are such a source of light in my life and humour. You know, it's a cliche to say it, but I feel it's just sort of expanded me as a person. And I think inevitably you, you bring that to your work. It's allowed me to take a bit of pressure off my work in a funny kind of way in that they, I suppose, have become my greatest priority. And I feel that both music and writing for me have somehow benefited by the occasional sidelong glance rather than being, this is, this is why, what I'm on the planet to do. So to me, they've been positive in that sense. Clearly, one of the difficulties about parenthood is it's so demanding on a day-by-day level and it just eats up time. And now my eldest boy is 10. I can't park him into bed at 7 anymore and put in a night shift to practice until midnight. He wants to talk and, you know, do his stand-up comedy riffs. And it, it's lovely. And for me, the challenge with motherhood is not sitting there engaging with him, thinking, OK, go to sleep so I can work, but actually being there with him in the moment. When I'm able to do that, I actually think that also helps my work because then it allows me to be with my work in the moment. And certainly, even when I was writing piano lessons and I'd maybe completed two-thirds of it before Reuben, my eldest, was born, and then I had a month or two of grace before my publisher said, you've really got to finish this book now. And so I had to finish it essentially when he was sleeping or in between breastfeeds, which meant that I had maybe 45-minute shifts at a time in which I just had to run into another room and just write like mad. And strangely, that was kind of liberating in the way that restrictions can be liberating. It meant there was no time to indulge in anything like writer's block. I just, that's a luxury I can't afford. So now if I have some writing time, I just have to sit down and I have to make it work. And likewise, if I have some time at the instrument, I just have to sit down and not, you know, wake to be inspired. It's probably engendered a much more pragmatic attitude towards my craft, I think. broadly about your career. By definition, it's a portfolio career, which is now something that universities teach. Do you think that being multifaceted is necessary for artists of the modern age? I'm not sure that it's necessary. I'm sort of in two minds about this. On the one hand, I've always had a hankering for a sort of Renaissance ideal. And I realise we're now well beyond the point in which it's possible for a single human being to know everything. But I do find in my own, I guess, artistic practice, I enjoy the breadth and I enjoy the way different disciplines feed each other. On the other hand, there is the danger of superficiality, which I think is, generally speaking, a a modern-day hazard. And there's an intensity to the specialisation, for instance, of playing an instrument and the discipline of that, which I think is quite wonderful and it would be a shame to see that dispensed with in in favour of being able to just juggle and multitask. I think there is something beautiful about deep, immersive attention and I suppose I'd be wary of saying that that should be lost in favour of being a jack-of-all-trades. What are some past career highlights and also what are you looking forward to approaching in the next phase of your career? Oh, there's been many with the trio. I loved a project we did a few years ago, which was the complete Beethoven trios. Just I loved it. I learned so much from it. 
speaking of immersion, I felt so deeply immersed in, in that world. Writing, I guess, the publication of my first book, the stage play that sort of came out of that, that I acted in, which I'd never acted before, and that's been remounted now four times. It seems to pop up every two years, and it's toured extensively. That's been essentially a joyful thing. Coming up, potential highlights this year. The funny thing is the things that you're most excited about aren't always the ones that actually end up being the most profound or amazing. Sometimes it's a little humble concert somewhere that actually ends up being a kind of definitive experience. But this year's a very, very exciting year. With my trio, we're collaborating with the singer-songwriter Paul Kelly in a new song cycle at the Adelaide Festival next month. That's with James Ledger as well, who's composed these arrangements. We have a weekend festival at Epsom House in Tasmania in a few weeks, and we're collaborating with the wonderful violinist Andrew Haveron, who's the concertmaster of the Sydney Symphony, and it's just always an enormous joy to play with him. And with the violist Jackie Cronin, who's married to Tim and is a, is a dear long-term friend of the trio, and we're going to be performing a range of extraordinary repertoire and, I'm, and again it's one of those immersive weekends I always love them at the end of the year we'll be touring in with uh, the violist Martin Alexander in a concert series presented by Anam and that looks to be a really really exciting and and lively tour I should have a new book coming out later this year a work of fiction kind of interwoven stories about a woman's life over five decades I'm looking forward to that seeing the light of day and then, you know, beyond that, there are other creative projects that I'm sort of cooking up and that I'm, I'm excited about. One last question. What advice would you give to any type of artist, really, musician, writer, visual, who wants to do it all? In my old age, I'm, <laughs> I'm now starting to think perhaps there is some sense in the notion that you may be able to do it all, but maybe don't try to do it all at once. You know, there's a time for everything, perhaps. And sometimes the notion of taking your foot off the accelerator in one area of your life can be terrifying because you think it's artistic death or even remaining still for a second will kill you. I now think if you can be a little bit sensible about where you're focusing your energy um, and don't try to spread yourself too thin every single moment of every day, that perhaps is the sanest sanest approach and you're never going to be able to do it all you're going to have to be selective you know choose a choose a couple of disciplines don't don't try to cover every single one but having said that if there's something in you that's insisting that you have to pursue more than one thing then you know for god's sake listen to that inner voice and and do it and i think the most important thing is to keep on making and not bask in your previous triumphs and keep on making it new so you don't sort of petrify into some version of your previous best self. Keep on reinventing the wheel and finding new ways to stimulate yourself and grow. One thing I like about the way my career has unfolded is because there's so much diversity, I often feel I can complete a project in one area and there's some sort of little creative explosion that happens with the completion of something and you can bounce off that into the next thing and I, I find that highly stimulating but sure there are times that I'm thinking am I going to be able to pull this off this time particularly if it's a you know an, an essay or a, or a book or something and then I just drink a whole lot of coffee um, and that can sometimes help and I'm always saying to everybody I, I'm around me oh look yeah I'm in a bit of a tight place there's a lot of deadlines but 
I'm going to be over it soon and everything's going to be normal. And everyone these days just goes, yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's always been like that. So um, I do think down, I am starting to realize that downtime is important, you know, creative replenishment. But I also just find it really exciting. A new project is really exciting. And if it's something you haven't done before, that's sort of thrilling. And, and you know, it's, it's a wonderful learning opportunity too. So um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm often sort of excited by, by what I'm doing. That was Anna Goldsworthy at the piano with other tutors from National Music Camp 2019 in a performance given for NMC students. And all the music you heard in this podcast was from that performance of Sensons Septet. You also heard Anna speaking at a presentation for students and faculty at Elder Hall. This podcast was produced and edited by Stella Joseph Jarecki and me, Maddie Twoster. Special thanks to Jakub Galdashinsky and Philip Samets for their guidance and support. And check out the AYO website for more National Music Camp podcasts by the 2019 Words About Music team.